We have never met before. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and I just want to welcome you again into worship this morning, whether you're here in person or whether you're joining us online. Uh, we're thrilled that you chose to worship with us. Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 131. You can find it uh, in your bulletins. It'll be up here on the screen as well. Hear these words now from the book that we love. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray one more time briefly. Gracious God, we thank you for these scriptures. We thank you for these words that were written by David the psalmist. We pray uh, that you would help us this morning to listen well. Uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work of illumination and to bring uh, the truth of this psalm to bear on our hearts and on our minds. Would you transform us? Would you work in us? Would each of us hear what you desire for us to hear this morning, whether that's conviction or encouragement, or whatever it is, Lord, would you speak? We want to hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as many of you know, my wife and I, we just recently moved a little less than two months ago from South Jersey, the Philadelphia metro area, here to Winston-Salem with our two daughters. We have a four-year-old, Olivia, almost five-year-old, and then a two-year-old, Madison. We were serving a church up there for the past nine years and just uh, came down here. And uh, for those of you that have moved long distance before, especially if you've moved long distance with uh, little kids in tow, you know that there's uh, a lot to do uh, when it comes to long distance moving. So beforehand, there's all the packing and the selling of the house, there's the move itself, then you get to the new place, and there's lots of things that still have to be taken care of there. And by God's grace, I would say we feel pretty settled in. We're in a rental house uh, here in Ardmore, just a few blocks away. And we have accomplished a lot of the things that were on our to-do list, all those things you have to do, like go and get your title changed and your license plates and all that kind of stuff. So we've done all that, which is really great. Uh, but our to-do list is still quite long. Uh, there's some tidying up of the yard to do, and I realized this morning that I probably should mow the yard today. I, didn't, I forgot about that, didn't do it yesterday. Um, and there's lots of other things on the list, too. We're still continuing to look to buy a house. Uh, we still need to settle on a uh, pediatrician and a doctor and a dentist and an optometrist and a veterinarian and a mechanic. And then we need to make appointments with all of those people, um, the mechanic especially, uh, soon, some oil changes that need to happen. And that list alone isn't too bad. It doesn't sound too overwhelming. But that doesn't include all the other things. It doesn't include all the relational things and the family things. Like my wife and I just calling a babysitter finally and scheduling a date night or prepping for our beach trip in a couple of weeks. We need to make some decisions with our extended family in Knoxville about when we're going to see them next, how that's going to work, and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, there's what brought us here to the Dash, which is my job as executive pastor here at Redeemer and all the things that go with that in these first two months, just trying to wrap my head around all the people and staff and ministries and all the wonderful things going on here. I feel like I learn every day, definitely every week, like, oh, there's that, oh, we do this, oh, that person. It's just, there's a lot that we're learning, that I'm learning. 
And over these last seven weeks, probably needless to say, my mind has been full. It is spinning somewhat constantly, and uh, I'm feeling a little mentally fatigued, even here this morning. And I've noticed over these last couple of weeks, especially, that as I try to sit in silence during my morning daily office, my morning prayers, I try to sit there in silence, and it's really hard for me right now to be quiet. My mind just immediately starts going through all of these things. I can't shut it off. It's flooded with thoughts and ideas and worries about all those things I just mentioned and many more. And I bet that I'm not alone here this morning. I bet I'm not alone. I bet during the first 40 minutes of this service, many of you, if not all of you, are already thinking about some things that are on your list, things you need to accomplish this afternoon, maybe what you would like to do tonight, maybe what's on your calendar for this coming week or what's coming up at work tomorrow. I don't know what's occupying your mind. I don't know what those thoughts are that are in your mind right now, but I bet there is something. And the reality for all of us in this room, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, whether we're young or old, is that our interior worlds, what the scriptures call our hearts or our souls, that those, our interior worlds are often frantic. They're often noisy and chaotic, often restless. And in our passage this morning, we catch a glimpse of what it's like to have an inner life that's quiet, an inner life that's calm, an interior world that's marked by peace, by stillness, by trust. And the psalmist here is David. If you're not familiar with the story of David or who he is, he was the king of an entire nation, the monarch of God's ancient people, Israel. And my assumption, if he was a king, is that he was quite busy. I assume that he had a lot of responsibility, a lot to do, probably carried a lot of stress. But yet we see here in this passage that David was able to maintain a quiet soul. He was able to navigate through life with some sense of inner calm and inner stillness. After my eighth grade year, I retired from organized sports as some do. You got to quit eventually for me, it was then. And in my freshman year of high school, I began mountain biking. It was kind of the first active hobby that I fell in love with uh, after burning out on baseball and tennis. And I used to ride uh, about once a week at least, if not more, through high school into college. But when I first started mountain biking, I would crash all the time. And when I say all the time, hear me say, all the time, every time. Every time I got on the bike, I would crash for years. But as time went on and I rode more and more and I rode with other people, I began to learn some techniques, techniques that were very helpful. They would keep me out of the poison ivy. They would keep me uh, a little less bloody when I would come home. And one of those techniques that was particularly helpful was how to, to properly navigate a downhill section of trail that was particularly rough. So think lots of rocks and roots and ruts that are in the way, and you're on this downhill. And the best way to attack a difficult decline like that is not to squeeze down on the handlebars, to stare right in front of your tire and just try to miss everything, try to navigate every rock, every root, every rut. That's the wrong way to do it. It doesn't work, I promise. What happens is you end up face planting over the handlebars. I've done it many times, been there. Instead, what you want to do is you actually want to lift your body up off the seat. 
and you stand up on your pedals, keep your knees bent, you hold the handlebars loosely, but you know, you gotta keep the bike pointed in the right direction, but you hold the handlebars. And what you, what you do is you allow the bike to just bounce and rock and rattle and bump over and hit everything beneath you. And the goal is that you actually are able to do that and keep your upper body still. You can keep your upper body calm while underneath everything feels a little out of control and is bouncing around. And it's counterintuitive. It does feel really strange the first couple of times you try it, but it really works. And it's that specific posture, learning that specific posture, that allows you to navigate those sections well. And I give you that illustration because I believe that we, as followers of Jesus, also must learn a certain position, a specific posture, not necessarily of our bodies, but of our heart and of our soul, in order to have a quiet inner world, in order to have a calm interior life like David describes. And so what is that position? What is that posture? How should our heart be aligned so that we can ride through our days and weeks and years with some inner calm like the psalmist? Even if the train, even if the circumstances of life, those external things we can't control, even if they're rocky and they're rough, they're busy, how can we move through them with some stillness and with some peace? If I had to sum up that posture that I think David is describing here in this psalm, in one word, it would be contentment. Contentment. See, a quiet soul, a soul that is calm and still, is one that is marked and defined by contentment. And so from here, I want to talk about contentment in three parts. So first, what it is. Second, where it comes from. And third, how to get it. What it is, where it comes from, how to get it. And I promise that sometimes it's my first sermon here at Redeemer. Sometimes my outlines are more creative than that, a little more artful. That's not very clever, but hey, it is what it is. One of those occasions. Makes sense. So first, what it is. There are actually two aspects, I think, of contentment that we see here in this passage. And they're actually like opposite sides of the same coin. And, and I want to look at both of those uh, here for a moment. So the first aspect of contentment is not craving what we do not have. Not craving what we do not have. Look back at verse 1. David writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. See, David recognizes that there are things out there in the world that he doesn't have. Things he doesn't know. Things he, he can't do. And he chooses not to go after them. He chooses not to set his mind on those things. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, the prophet speaking in God's voice says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And what these two passages and others, and Scripture as a whole, teaches is that there are certain, certain things that God, as our creator, as the one who is infinite and perfect and all-knowing, there are certain things that he knows, there are certain things that he does, that he has chosen for us as human beings not to know and not to do. And part of contentment is not craving those things. It's accepting that reality. And in this psalm, we see David accepting that truth. He's embracing the fact that he is a finite being. 
that he's a creature created by God and he's not God himself. And so certainly our humanity is a limitation. We can't fly. We can't breathe underwater or other things. But there are actually other God-given limits that we must grapple with as well if we want to have a quiet and calm soul. And these are things like our personality, our season of life, our emotional, physical, and intellectual capacities, and scars and wounds from our past. Pastor Pete Scazzaro, he's a pastor in New York. Tim Keller wasn't the only one. There's another one, Pete Scazzaro, good guy. In his book, Emotionally Healthy Church, he talks about how embracing these limits that I just mentioned is actually a gift. And he writes, emotionally healthy people understand the limits God has given them. They joyfully receive the one, two, seven, or ten talents God has so graciously distributed. As a result, they are not frenzied and covetous, trying to live a life, excuse me, trying to live a life that God never intended. They are marked by contentment and joy. I knew I wasn't going to make it through the second sermon. I've been fighting some, uh, some cold. The psalmist, David, has embraced his limitations. He does not crave what he does not have, which has freed him to be humble. It's freed him to be at peace. And you could say that David is actually unambitious. And when I say the word unambitious, some of you probably immediately bristled a little bit there and might be thinking, hey, I'm a pretty ambitious person. I'm pretty type A. Are you saying that ambition is bad? The short answer is no. I don't think ambition is bad. I don't think it's unconditionally a negative thing. It can be a virtue or it can be a vice. What ambition does is simply turn aspiration into action. And that by itself is, I think, a neutral thing. On the positive side, ambition can propel or motivate a scientist to discover a new medicine. It can compel a young man or woman to be the first person in their family to graduate from college. It can propel a teenager to practice day after day on an instrument until they can make beautiful music. However, on the negative side, Just to give one example, ambition to grow the bottom line can cause a company, corporation, to cut ethical and legal corners. It can cause a company or a corporation to make decisions without regard for the welfare of its employees or the environment. And I think Paul's words in Philippians 2-3, which we actually read already in the call to confession, are really helpful. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition. And so when I say that a content soul is unambitious, I don't mean that it necessarily has no ambition, but rather that whatever ambition it has is aligned with the heart of our Redeemer. And Paul describes that heart, describes who Jesus is just a few verses later. Who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus was ambitious, you could say, but his greatest ambition was a selfless one. It was to rescue and redeem his people. And in order to accomplish that, instead of gaining things, he gave up things. He gave up the riches of heaven, and he gave up his life. And so, as Christians, our ambition, that desire for success or achievement, at the very least, it must not violate that initial call to follow in the footsteps of Jesus to live a sacrificial life for the sake of others. Now, excursus over, going back to the passage. What David is saying in verse 1 is that, I, is that I can accept that there are certain things out there I can't know and I can't do, and that's okay. That's what David's saying. And remember, too, that he's a king. He's a monarch. He could take whatever he wants. He could get whatever he wanted. But he's accepting those limitations willingly, and it brings him contentment, a quiet soul. And so the first aspect of contentment, the first side of that coin, is not craving what you do not have. And the second side of it is being fulfilled with what you do have. Being fulfilled with what you do have. Look at verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And this is a really unique and, um, and beautiful illustration, I think, that David uses here. And as I was studying this passage, I came across a quote by a German scholar named Arthur Weiser, which if you're an expecting parent, Arthur, put that on the list. It's a good one. And here's what, he, here's what he says. It's a long quote, so I put it up there if you want to read along. The Christian is not like an infant crying loudly for his mother's breast, but like a weaned child that quietly rests by his mother's side, happy in being with her. No desire now comes between him and his God, for he is sure that God knows what he needs before he asks him. And just as the weaned child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother as only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the worshiper, after a struggle, has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires God for himself and not as a means of fulfillment for his own wishes. His life's center of gravity has shifted. <clears throat> so if you think of an unweaned baby, an unweaned baby is restless in a mother's lap because she's hungry. And what does mommy mean? What does mommy represent? Mommy represents milk. Mommy represents food. But a weaned child, a weaned baby, isn't in her mother's lap for the milk. She's just there for pleasure. She's just there because she thinks mommy's awesome. And it's just great to be with mommy. And so what David is communicating in this verse is that it should be the same way for us as God's adopted children with our Heavenly Father. As we grow and develop spiritually, our relationship transitions from a less mature relationship. Hang with me, this is going to be long. I'm doing my best. <clears throat> from a less mature relationship to a more mature one. So weaning isn't about a loss or detachment, it's just a natural passage from one type of relationship to another. And so over time, we begin to run to God simply to enjoy him, 
and not only what he can do for us. We enter into his presence to behold his face and not just to try to get something out of his hands. In his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, Pastor Eugene Peterson, discussing this passage, sums it up well. The two things that Psalm 131 prunes away are unruly ambition and infantile dependency, what we might call getting too big for our britches and refusing to cut the apron strings. And so what is contentment, this posture for a quiet soul? It's not craving what we do not have, and it's being fulfilled by what we do have, namely God himself. And so second, where does it come from? Where does contentment come from? I've answered that a little bit, even in that explanation, that it comes through uh, accepting limitations, it comes through maturing in our relationship with God. But I want to explore for a moment what's underneath those things. What's the foundation upon which contentment is built? And David, I think, tells us here in verse 3. Look back at the passage again. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. See, David was content. He was able to calm and quiet his soul because every ounce, every drop of his confidence and his trust was in God. It wasn't in himself. It wasn't in his abilities or his intellect. It wasn't in his role as a king. It was not in others. It was not in technology or his circumstances or his relationships. But the root, the core, the foundation of his contentment was God and God alone. Another quote that I have for you here, Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs has a great illustration about contentment. He says, to be content as a result of some external thing is like warming a man's clothes by the fire. But to be content through an inward disposition of the soul is like the warmth that a man's clothes have from the natural heat of his body. A man who is healthy in body puts on his clothes, and perhaps at first on a cold morning they feel cold, but after he has had them on for a little while they are warm. Now how didn't they get warm? Were they near the fire? No. This came from the natural heat of his body. And when a sickly man, the natural heat of whose body has deteriorated, puts on his clothes, they do not get hot for a long time. He must warm them by the fire, and even then they will soon be cold again. And it's August, so I realize the idea of warming clothes by open flame sounds not so great. It's hot outside, and most of us have probably never done that, which is fine. It's a little bit of an antiquated example, but I, but I like the illustration. I think it's helpful. And what he's saying is that any sense of contentment that you feel because of external things will fade. They're fleeting. If you are placing your hope and trust in positions or possessions or pacifiers, you will never be able to sustain a calm and quiet interior life like David's describing. And maybe you feel satisfied this morning because you just got back from a, a summer trip or maybe because it's the weekend and weekends are nice. But hey, guess what? Full work week starts tomorrow. Maybe you feel content because the fiscal year at your company just ended and maybe you got a raise, or maybe you got a bonus. It's gonna give you some extra money, allow you to have a little bit of financial security, maybe allow you to purchase something that you've really been wanting for a while. Hey, that's great, let's celebrate that, but that money's gonna go away. You're gonna spend it, you're gonna need more. 
it's not going to last. Maybe you feel satisfied because of a relationship, a relationship with your spouse or girlfriend or a boyfriend, significant other, maybe your kids. You're just communicating well, enjoying each other, everything's great. Hey, that's awesome. But guess what? It's going to get hard eventually. There's going to be hard things down the road. There's going to be arguments. There's going to be frustrations. And if you're someone here this morning who's not a follower of Jesus and you're exploring spiritual realities, I want to I ask you a question. Wouldn't you agree, at least, that contentment is a good quality for a person to have? Isn't someone whose interior world, interior life, is marked by humility, unselfish ambition, and satisfaction a better and healthier human being than someone who just oozes pride and selfishness and greed? We can agree on that. We've all experienced the fact that content people defined in this way, they make great bosses, they make great spouses, they make great friends, they make great neighbors. Let me ask you a follow-up question if you're not a follower of Christ. If God isn't in the equation, where does that contentment come from? What is the foundation upon which it's built? And how rock solid is that foundation? How much can you really trust yourself, honestly? How much can you really trust your friends, your circumstances, to continuously satisfy you, to bring you that peace? And I want to commend to you and encourage you to think about the fact that I, I believe that true contentment, true satisfaction, true fulfillment can only be found in God. It can only be found when he's that foundation. And all those other things, they may look great, they may feel great, but trying to construct your life upon them is like building a house on sand. That when the storms of life come, it's not going to be able to stand up. It's not going to be able to endure. So that's what contentment is. That's what contentment comes from, that foundation. So finally, how do we get it? How can we practically pursue this posture that leads us to a quiet soul, a calm inner life? There are many things that I could say here as I was preparing for this message. I mean, infinite things almost you could say. But there are two that I think this psalm hints at, and so I want to touch on just those two and mention just those two. The first one is community. Community. Look at the prescript, which are those words that appear immediately before verse 1 in our English Bibles. It says, a psalm of ascent. A psalm of ascent. These were a collection of songs that were put all together in, in, in the book of Psalms intentionally. And they were sung annually by Israelite pilgrims while they were on their way to worship in Jerusalem. So as God's ancient people traveled along, they would recite and sing and pray these words together as a group to prepare their hearts and prepare their minds to meet with God. And the takeaway for us, I think, here, is that we also need other people with us to help us sing this song. We need others who will remind us of the truth of this song. We need other people who can see our heart to help us identify misplaced hope to expose our sin. We need others to point out the places in our lives where we're not content, where we're not satisfied in God alone. 
And let me be honest, like this, this type of community is hard. It's uncomfortable at times. But it's good and it's healthy and it's right. A Brazilian Catholic bishop once said, to walk alone is possible, but the good walker knows that the great trip is life and it requires companions. And so the truth for us as followers of Jesus is that we cannot live isolated and independent lives and do this well. We just can't. So sign-ups for real-life groups are underway. So our small groups, it's our community here at Redeemer. If you're not in one and you've been here a long time, try it. Sign up for one. Maybe you're a newcomer. Try it. Sign up for one. If you're in a group or you're someone that's been blessed with long-term, healthy Christian community, whether at this church or other churches, that's awesome. I want to celebrate that with you. Keep that going and, and, and do that. But I want you to recognize that there are dozens of men and women, in their, especially in their 20s and 30s, that are dying for the friendship and companionship that you already have. And they're dying for mentorship. They're dying to be with men and women that are older than them, that'll love them, that'll help them sing this song. Think back to the illustration of the Psalm of Ascents as they're walking along the road this is not a homogenous group of people. It's intergenerational. It's going to go from toddlers, babies, all the way up to the oldest grandparents. And so if you're in that older group and you have that Christian community, I want to encourage you this morning to seek out and be open to new people coming into that group, coming into that community so they can experience what you've experienced and so that they can, you can help them sing this song as well. So the first way to pursue contentment that's in this psalm, I believe, is to participate regularly in Christian community. And the second one, the second way, is effort. Effort. That's what all of us want to hear at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Effort. Look back at verse 2. I think it's here. What does David say? Look at the passage. I have calmed and quieted my soul. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Quick grammar lesson, David is the subject of this sentence, right? David is the one doing the action, doing the calming. He is putting some energy into that process. It's not just happening to him naturally. There's some energy, some effort on his part. And I want to be clear that as Protestant Christians, we believe deeply that our justification, our being put in a right relationship with God, that requires no work on our part. That's something that God does and God alone does. It has been accomplished and applied already to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We have been saved. It's done. It's finished. However, the scriptures also teach that our sanctification this lifelong process of growing progressively more like Jesus requires effort. It requires some work on our part. It doesn't just naturally happen. And certainly I believe that God is involved. He works in us by his Holy Spirit to make us more like Christ. But there's a part we have to play. We have to be proactive. We must cooperate with him in that process. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to put in effort 
and to cooperate with God in this. I believe at a very basic level, at the very least, it means engaging in some of the tried and true spiritual practices that the church throughout the centuries has done and often calls spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. Now, if that term sounds really scary to you, we can call it something else. That's fine. You can call it rhythms of grace. You can call it habits of grace. You can pick a different term, but it's the same thing. These disciplines. Pastor and Professor Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, this is what he writes. We can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in his overall style of life he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the type of activities he engaged in and by arranging our whole lives around the activities that he himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of his father. So what Dallas Willard is arguing at the beginning of this book, and I believe correctly, is that these spiritual disciplines like corporate worship and prayer, Bible reading, fasting and feasting, Sabbath, silence and solitude, service, stewardship and generosity, evangelism, and there's more. These are things that aren't on the periphery of the Christian life, way out here somewhere, but they're things that are, very, that are at the very center of it. And actually what I think Willard would say is that these ancient practices, these are actually what it means to be a Christian and to live like a Christian, are those practices. And so the second way for us to pursue contentment is to practice regularly these disciplines, these habits of grace. As we close, I do have some bad news. You may know this news already, that David did not sing this song well. He didn't sing this song perfectly. If you're not familiar with the story of David, I'm not going to rehash it here. It's in the Bible. You can go back and listen to Giorgio's sermon from a few weeks ago on Psalm 51. But he screwed up, worse than most of us probably ever will. <clears throat> and the truth is, we may not do exactly what David did, but, ne but none of us in this room, including myself, are going to sing this song perfectly either. But as we walk through life, our souls aren't always going to be in this posture of contentment. We're going to rebel at times against our limitations. We're going to crave those things that we don't have. We're going to revert to spiritual infancy and not be satisfied by God, we'll sin and we'll need to repent. There's bad news, but there's also good news, which is that there's grace at the foot of the cross. There's always forgiveness and mercy in Jesus. And when we screw up, when we don't sing this song well, we can turn to him. It means when we fall down on this journey that we can get up and keep walking. We can keep putting one foot in front of the other and continue to pursue this posture of contentment. We can keep moving forward as we seek in the midst of the chaos and the busyness and the noise of our inner worlds. We can continue to try to cultivate that quiet and still soul. And so, Redeemer Church, my final exhortation to you this morning is the same as David's at the very end of this song. Hope in Yahweh. Hope in the Lord your God. Hope in him from now 
until eternity. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for these words of David. We pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to cultivate a posture of contentment. God, we need you. We need the chaos and the busyness of our inner worlds to be calmed and to be still. Would you help us to do these things? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.